today on 2C Vans. Put it all together and I found out that from the eggs I could tell that the diet of the red drum females was changing during the drought. At the beginning of the drought they were eating mostly shrimp and crabs, blue crabs. Yeah. During the drought the shrimps and blue crabs died out because they both need fresh water for their larvae to spawn. So the populations, the populations of shrimps and red drum went down and then when the drought recovery occurred, the shrimp came back faster than the blue crabs because they have a shorter lifespan. Yep. Hello, welcome to Two Sea Fans at Moat Marine Laboratory, your podcast for marine science, conservation, education here at Moat in Sarasota, Florida. I'm Haley Rutger. Wow, and I'm Joe Nicholson. Again, still flabbergasted the, how long that title is. The intro is not getting any shorter, Joe. They, mm-hmm. they need to know who we are. We need to come up with an acronym for it. Okay, help me out. Okay, later. 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 Because right now we need to spend all of our time with a really awesome guest we have today. Um, could you please tell us your name and title? Yes, I'm Dr. Lee Fuman from the University of Texas Marine Science Institute. At that location, I'm the director of the Fisheries and Mariculture Lab. And I also hold the Perry R. Bass Chair in Fisheries and Mariculture. That's awesome. And uh, it sounds like you have a very good reason for being here at Moat. So what would that be? Well, I've uh, been asked to join uh, Moat and FSU as the uh, Moat Eminent Scholar Chair for 2019. Wow. That's Joe, he fits right in here with those long titles. Yeah. Right. And, well, yeah. and, and that chair has been held by some pretty um, phenomenal people over the years. Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. So um, uh, I, I assume that you have some uh, cross interests with us, but what kind of species and uh, questions do you work on um, at, at UT? Well, uh, back at the Fisheries and Mariculture Lab, uh, we work on a variety of species, uh, just to give you the names of the species off the top, the, uh, uh, we work with red drum, we work with southern flounder, and we're working with pigfish. Uh, in the past, we've worked with other species as well, and in the future, we may be working on things like red snapper as well. Uh, the, the theme of the research that's gone on at our lab for decades has been uh, focusing on uh, sport fishes. Oh, cool. Yeah, so uh, that's... Uh, that's something that's pretty special in a lot of uh, basic biology labs. People are working with things like zebrafish and so forth, which are really important and valuable models to understand physiology and things like that. But as an ecologist, I want to work with species that are local and important. And uh, sport fishing uh, in Texas, just as it is in Florida, Florida is hugely huge. important. Yeah, yeah it's. A, I think uh, I'm going to... St- Say Florida is the fishing capital of the world. Saltwater fishing, I think. Yes. Something we have some designation like that. That's really important. And we've got all our our snook. We got our red drum here. Um, the the pigfish. I don't think we worked with it. Moat. What are those guys? Yeah, I'm well, not even familiar with the pigfish. Yeah, well, you you do have them here in Florida, and yeah. for the same reason that we have them in Texas. Well, I, that's a silly way to phrase it, but they're important for the same reason as they are in Texas, and that is they're important bait fish. Oh, okay. Hmm. Well, you need the bait fish to have the, the bigger fish. Exactly. Yes. An ecologist would say so. Um, so how did you end up uh, coming to us at Moat? Um, how did you get in oh, touch I'll with our... You, I know. It was Ken. Ken was like, hey, I know this guy. He's really cool. And Is he comes he to s- all our, our conferences. Is that so. how he said it? Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> sounds exactly That sounds like, like Ken. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it was a tag team effort. It was Ken and Kevin Mayne oh, as well. So well, uh, they both called me up on the phone and explained the moat um, 
eminent scholar program to me, and then uh, as the conversation went on, they said, oh, by the way, would you be interested in being our eminent scholar chair? And I, I was just flabbergasted that they would ask me to do that and humbled and honored at the same time. Um, but after I got over it, I said, okay. Okay. <laughs> nice. So how often will you be actually here? Well, I'm going to be here continuously for about two months. Then I, I need to go back to teach. I have teaching responsibilities back at uh, in Texas. Uh, and I'll be back in Texas for about two months. And then I'll come back here again for another two months. So uh, all in, in total over a period of about six months, I'll be here about four months. Two and two and two and two. Exactly. Kind of, okay, gotcha, cool. So uh, Dr. Kevin Main, one of the scientists at Mo who brought you here, was telling us, and as she phrased it, you have a keen interest in larval fish ecology and, keen. and physiological ecology. Keen being the key word here. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, what uh, can you tell us what those mean and how you got into those subjects? Well, uh, I think the m- my interests have varied a lot over the years, but there's been a common theme from the very first research I ever did in, in larval fish ecology, that is understanding how uh, fishes make a living in the world during their early life mm-hmm. stages. And um, the physiological ecology part is the more recent part of that, uh, for many years, I was looking at behavior of fish larvae and development of fish larvae and how development and behavior allow them to make a living and how it changes the way they make a living as they develop. And the questions ultimately led into ones that required physiology. So uh, trying to understand how the physiology of fish larvae affects their ability to make a living in the world. So basically like the functions of their body. Um, yeah, yeah. Sort of. I mean, I'm trying to get Is that simplifying? Yeah. Am I, simpl- am I helping? <laughs> well, I mean, there's, there's lots of kinds of, or lo- lots of aspects of physiology. You know, mm-hmm. one aspect is sensory ecology, so uh, how animals detect things in their environment like predators or food or noxious conditions or favorable conditions. Uh, but aside from sensory ecology, there's also uh, respiratory physiology where um, – you have to understand how animals are taking in oxygen, getting rid of CO2, and uh, there's also nutritional ecology, and mm-hmm. that's one of the things I'm really interested in now is is how does the nutrition, the things that a mother eats, affect the composition of her eggs? Oh wow! And the reason that's important is because, you know, fish ha- when fish are in their eggs, the nutrition that they are getting is from the yolk that yeah. the mother put yeah, yeah. into the eggs. And even after they hatch, they have yolk with them, and they're using that yolk they have that as yolk their sack. source of yeah. food, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, it turns out that the composition of the yolk is determined by what the mother ate. Mm. Well, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, and yeah. if the, if something affects what the mother eats, like uh, a red tide kills out all or the food that the no- fish or normally or eats, yeah, yeah, yeah. and Thank it's eating th- something else. <laughs> yeah. For thinking of our most pertinent local example. Well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so when the ecosystem changes for some reason or another, whether it's caused by humans or just by nature, mm-hmm. it could be a hurricane come by, it changes the ecosystem, that's going to change the diet of the quality Fe- adult of the female food, yeah. fish, uh-huh. and that then it's going to affect what the eggs are made of, and that's going to possibly affect. You could have a stunted, uh, uh, stunted, you know, year of of snook or something. Absolutely, could yeah. be that. I picture um, a, a fish, a larval fish ecologist or physiologist bending over a microscope for most of their day because <laughs> <laughs> you're looking with marine species and it seems like most of their larvae are tiny Very specks. Very tiny. Yeah. Well, they are. Uh, most of them have eggs that are about one millimeter in diameter. Oh, boy. 
And uh, when they hatch out, they're probably about two and a half to three and a half millimeters in length. Hmm. And then from there they grow if yeah. they survive. If they survive, yeah. And that's the big thing is, is their survival. Do you do most of your work in a lab setting or do you manage to look at larvae in the field? I don't know how you go about that. <laughs> well, most of it is in the lab. Okay. You know, uh, we do a lot of experimental work where we're testing the effects of right. environmental conditions on an animal or in case of uh, the dietary work we we feed adult females different f- foods and then see what the eggs look like and how the larvae develop. Mm-hmm. So an awful lot of my work is in the, f- in the laboratory. But I do occasionally do field work to try to confirm the results that we find in the laboratory. Yeah. Well, that's nice. If you, uh, if you manage to collect larvae in the field, how do you know what they are? <laughs> well, well, yeah. They, they all look different, I would assume. Well, it depends on how well-trained you are. Okay. <laughs> to, to most people, uh, certainly on the first time they look at fish larvae, they all look the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they don't look like fish at all. Um, but at, if you are well-trained in uh, identifying fish larvae, then, uh, then they do look different. But not all of them. Even a very well-trained uh, taxonomist, we call them, mm-hmm. uh, uh, will have difficulty in telling some species apart just because they look so similar. Well, what else would they look like? Uh, insect? Would they look like an insect larva? No. 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 Okay. No. What flat, else would they look like? No. <laughs> they, they look like nothing you've seen before. Nothing I've seen. Yeah. Alien creature. Yeah. Okay. I've seen some uh, not not fish, but uh, stone crab larvae. One of our scientists was raising, and they look absolutely alien to me. So I can't wait to see what a tiny snook looks like under the microscope. Mm-hmm. And yeah. where will your lab be set up? Will it be here uh, on? The City Island or out at uh, our aquaculture facility? I think I'm working in both places. In fact, I'm setting up offices in both places because my work not only is laboratory-based, but as I said, we also do field-based work. And a lot of my research uh, has been aimed toward improving stock enhancement efforts. So so with the MAP facility, that would fit right in there. Exactly. And working with uh, Ken Lieber's research in stock enhancement. So, mm-hmm. in fact, just yesterday I was speaking with uh, with his staff and some of the research, looking at, listening to some of the research that they were doing and, and making comments that hopefully will give them ideas for expanding their research. Sounds like Ken and Kevin may be fighting over you for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Your scarce resource here. Um, so we have we mostly work um, a lot with snook in terms of fisheries enhancement and aquaculture. It's not our only aquaculture species, but it's a big one. I think Ken has described as sort of an ecological probe, like a fish that can be released to help us study how to do fisheries enhancement effectively, I suppose. Um, so what what are you going to sort of bring into our work? What are you going to add that will be somewhat new to them? Well, I don't know. Okay. I, I haven't been here long enough to know that. You just sure. got here, Hales. Give yeah. him a break. I'm putting on too much pressure. Yeah, putting the pressure <laughs> on, yeah. <laughs> Kevin might have an idea about what she wants me to bring. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. But, you know, anytime uh, somebody comes from outside, uh, mm-hmm. they have their own background experience and ideas. And... Uh, that can rejuvenate or inspire uh, the existing people to do something a little bit differently. And I mean, that's what's been great about the history of the uh, Moat Eminent Chair in the, in that field. It's it's continuously brought new ideas and, and new people with uh, amazing backgrounds and, and qualifications. Oh, and it's is it's something that's true everywhere, you know, and in and it, all walks of life. If you're just surrounded by uh, people that are doing things the way that you've been doing them all the time, you are, you 
don't have the opportunity to make new breakthroughs that you wouldn't see because you're you're doing things the way you've always done. Them. It's not pushing the envelope. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Creative creative juices need to flow. Cross pollination. Yes. Yeah. All that stuff. <laughs> um, I was going to ask if you had any stories from um, any point in your career, uh, recent or past, um, that kind of give people an idea of what it's like to be you. Maybe uh, <laughs> maybe some funny ones. <laughs> No, I've just I've been very fortunate to have opportunities to do all sorts of very different research. I mean, I have a research project uh, since 1997. I've been doing a series of research projects in Antarctica on on seals. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, I've had an opportunity to work with, on whale sharks uh, off Western Australia. Uh, I've been able to do coral reef work uh, in on the Great Barrier Reef. Um, wow, you've been all over, man. Uh, no, it, but it's been great, great opportunities. And it's because, you know, I, over the years I've accumulated a, a set of, I like to refer to them as tools, uh, you know, skills, uh, analytical capabilities and so forth uh, that can be applied to a variety of different systems. So wow, although yeah. I've worked on larval fishes, I was analyzing behavior in a very, very detailed way. Yeah. And uh, when I made a presentation of that research uh, having to do with larval fish escaping from predators uh, at a conference, uh, a colleague uh, who works on marine mammals in Antarctica needed somebody who could analyze behavior. He was a physiologist oh, wow. yeah, and knew yeah, nothing yeah. about behavior. And he yeah. heard me make this and he said, well, that's really interesting. I wonder if this guy, me, yeah. can apply these methods for analyzing behavior on larval fishes to these giant seals, you know, these animals that are, uh, you know, five, 500 kilograms yeah. or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And so we got together and we wrote up a proposal and I've had 10 field seasons in Antarctica. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, I love that it, uh, the, the method applied somewhere else. That's really cool. And that, that particular yeah. project in Antarctica led to the whale shark work. Oh. Which then led to. <laughs> 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 We're big whale shark fans around here. Well, what, yeah. was your, what was your favorite of, of those you just mentioned? Oh, they're all. Uh, uh, how can there be a yeah, favorite? I, I mean, you get yeah. to swim with a whale shark, yeah, and that's, that's you right. get to go to Antarctica. Yeah, come on. And then you're on the Great Barrier do. Reef, and then yeah, those whale you? sharks probably love eating uh, larval fish or <laughs> or eggs. That's probably the other side of the um, the ecology equation there. Yeah. So, well, here's a. If you have time, here's another yeah. interesting story. And this one is uh, relatively recent. Uh, as I told you, I was really interested. I am interested in uh, how a mother's diet affects the composition of her eggs. Uh, And what I mean by composition is there are things in their eggs called fatty acids. You know, we refer to them for humans as omega-3s, right? Yeah. Uh, So one of the questions I had after doing these laboratory experiments where I'm feeding adult fish different things and seeing how they show up in the eggs, I wondered how much variability there is in wild-caught eggs of red drum. Mm-hmm. So at our lab, we're able to collect red drum eggs pretty easily because uh, we have a channel between two barrier islands, and the tide goes in and out, and the red drum spawn in the channel in the fall. And they just kind of broadcast spawn, like they yes. release the eggs and mm-hmm. sperm? Okay. So we would, I, I just sent my graduate students out every fall to collect red drum eggs, and we put them in the freezer, and then we did the biochemical analysis of them to see what the fatty acid composition looked like. Mm-hmm. And we did this year after year after year, and I was just anal- just monitoring what the fatty acid composition looked like from year to year. Mm-hmm. And I started to see how it was changing dramatically really? uh, from one year to the next. There, was, there seemed to be a pattern where in the first two years of the study, the levels were at one particular uh, 
uh, value. And then all of a sudden, in the third year, they dropped tremendously. And they stayed down for a couple of years, and then they gradually increased again. And I said, what's going on here? I mean, this looks yeah. like some kind of time trend, and I don't know what could be doing it. And then I started thinking, well, wait a second. The climate here has been changing. And I don't mean the long-term climate that when we refer to climate yeah, change. Yeah, yeah. But what was happening in Texas is we went through a the longest drought in the That's history right. of Texas. For That's four right. years, we had a drought. This study began two years before the drought. Oh, And remember I told you that two years it, the values were high yeah. and then it the, the went down? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then so I said, well, that's really interesting. So we carried it on longer. The drought ended. I continued the sampling. And then and it the, started to go back up. The values went up again. Huh. So Wow, you have to wonder if either there's uh, maybe a rainfall-related issue? a causal issue? effect between you know, or rainfall and... There was something there, right? Yeah. Something. So yeah. I ended up looking into it more closely. I got uh, data sets from Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, our equivalent of FWC, yeah. and they're doing the same kind of monitoring. They have the, the levels of all sorts of animals that they measure monthly in the bays. They also have the water temperature and water salinity and all that stuff. I put it all together, and I found out that from the eggs, I could tell that the diet of the red drum females was changing during the drought. At the beginning of the drought, they were eating mostly shrimp and crabs, blue crabs. Mm. Yeah. During the drought, the shrimps and blue crabs died out because they both need fresh water for their larvae to spawn. So the populations, yeah, yeah, yeah. the populations of shrimps and red drum went down. And then when the drought recovery occurred, the shrimp came back faster than the blue crabs because they have a shorter lifespan. Yep. And all of a sudden, menhaden started to pop up, oh, right? Yeah. And the red drum were eating the, the menhaden. menhaden yeah. So the bottom line is we were just sort of collecting these eggs in the wild over years just to see what was happening. And we discovered that you can now look at major changes in food webs that are driven by climate events. Climate events. Wow. And that yeah. was really, really exciting. That is that, that really was cool. Uh, you know, knowledge, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, you think of uh, climate um, climate events. You're saying that different than the long term climate change, but still, you think of that as being sort of hard to study the impacts of. And you showed something really distinctive. Yeah, that's cool. Well, you asked for a cool story. You got one. I did. Wow. I'm very satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> Um, as far as the, the longer-term outlook for the fishery species you study, there are longer-term climate trends. There's ocean acidification that's a concern for a lot of species. There's um, possible warming or temperature change over the long term. Maybe there are other trends. Are you looking at anything that's really long-term and trying to be predictive at all? Or do you know anyone who is? Well, certainly lots of researchers are looking at the effects of ocean acidification yeah. and, um, and other climate changes. Um, I have done a little bit of work on, uh, on ocean acidification, but not a lot of work on it. We, have, we had a, uh, an experiment that we did and discovered changes in the fatty acids of fish that were exposed to different levels of pH. But that's not my primary research. We do have a researcher at the Fisheries and Mariculture Lab where I work in Texas uh, named Dr. Andrew Espaugh, who is doing um, more intensive work on climate effects. Oh, cool. Well, I'm glad people are um, into that. Are there any other sort of uh, trends in the field that you're either uh, participating in or watching closely? Well, I'm uh, very, very interested in some uh, 
physiological work that we've been doing where, again, the diet of the mother is affecting the egg composition. And at the moment, it looks like that, that variation in egg composition is changing the physiology of her offspring, of her mm-hmm. children, right? Okay. And it looks like it might be changing them for the life of the children. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So, like, early nutrition seems to be changing the metabolism of young, and that early nutrition is caused by maternal nutrition. Yeah. Now, the reason this is so exciting is it may have application to human health. Oh, my gosh, yeah. In humans, If you're there's... Diet, I was yeah. afraid to ask and be too reductive, but... Uh, yeah, I've all, no, you've no, always no, no. wondered, yeah. <laughs> always wondered if a parent's, uh, like, you know, if a parent's generation had food scarcity or something, will that affect the, the children? Well, there certainly is plenty of evidence for yeah. that, especially mm-hmm. during World War II, yes. uh, not necessarily in the United States, but in Japan, for instance. Um, so there, are, there have been studies of that in the human health literature. Okay. But in, in the United States, for instance, and in more and more developing countries, uh, there's a, uh, a syndrome or a condition called m- metabolic syndrome, uh, which is a collection of conditions, as they refer to them in the medical world, uh, that are related to metabolism like obesity, hypertension, um, diabetes, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be a correlation between uh, a mother's condition and the condition, the long-term condition of her offspring, of mm-hmm. her children. And so the, the correlations often cited is that obese mothers tend to give chil- uh, birth to children who in later life become, become obese, obese yeah. right? So s- one of the presumptions is that it's a genetic factor, but yeah. another one is it has another proposition is that it's the mother's diet during pregnancy that uh. is altering the metabolism of her children. And that's that? what we're seeing in the larval fishes. Oh, wow. Would you call that an epigenetic phenomenon? Well, epigenetic is um, a very specific mechanism that needs okay. to be tested. Uh, if it were epigenetic, then the mother's diet would affect the metabolism of the offspring, offspring. and it would affect the genes of the offspring so that going forward that would translate genetically to the next generation but that doesn't have to be the case it Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be epigenetic it could simply be programming we call it uh, nutritional programming Mm -hmm. where the diet of the embryo is programming the metabolism for life for but one that would genera- not ne- for one, for one. that for that just generation that, just only. that one generation. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. it might be epigenetic. We don't know enough yet. That's a great um, great field, and <sighs> the the fish that it's been studied in. Um, what what species do they include? Are they species that are used as models for people? Or are they species that are studied more as sport fish or? Uh, well, uh, it's not being nutritional programming is just beginning to be studied now in fishes, right? It's been studied in mammals for quite some time, Mm -hmm. uh, things like rats and mice and uh, sheep and things like that that are are stand-ins for humans. Uh, There are problems with dealing with mammals because they have small numbers of children. So in terms of experiments, you have small number of individuals. Uh, And so we're trying to work on fishes, uh, which have a lot in common with humans in terms of physiology. They're not exactly the same, of course, but the no. physi- some of the physiological me- mechanisms are very similar. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to develop um, 
fishes as a model for nutritional programming because, for instance, a red drum can produce a half a million eggs yeah. at once. And yeah. so you have a lot more That's material a lot, to work with. A lot more. Yeah. And you can do experiments on uh, fishes that you could not possibly do on humans. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's why anything even even stranger to some people is fruit flies. Fruit flies are used in a number of studies that are <laughs> – but uh, fish are probably a lot closer to us than that. So, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, but the, the good thing is that if it works out, we have the potential for making an important contribution to human health. That's great. Wow. Yeah. It actually um, – it's – it's a general theme that is familiar to us at Moat. You probably know of our scientists who study um, some of the properties of the shark immune system and whether that could some of the compounds from that immune system could be applied to cancer treatment someday. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's a uh, fish surprise us. <laughs> All the time. Yes. Yeah. You never know what you're going to find in a fish. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up today, I wanted to uh, say something really cool that we learned about you. Um, you produce a podcast of your own. Yeah, we just found this out. This is great. So what, what, what's it called? Yeah. It's called Science and the Sea. Yeah. And it's a two-minute excerpt. Uh, it, it started, I think, about 12 years ago. Oh, and, wow. It's and, been going on for a long time. Yeah, and I think we air on something like 300 radio stations around the United States and actually in Canada, and I think we have an affiliate in New Zealand as well. Wow. Yeah, and so it, it came about when I was uh, when I was a graduate student. I was writing my dissertation, and I had the radio on in my office, and and uh, that was at the University of Michigan, and, and uh, it was the, the University of Michigan station, which is an NPR affiliate. And uh, every once in a while, they would um, play Stardate, which is a, a podcast that uh, is about astronomy. Yeah. And I always thought that was the most— Was that with Sagan? No, 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 yeah. no. It, it was, uh, but it was uh, so interesting because you know one of the great things about astronomy is it's something that we can all appreciate because we can see the sky, yep. mm -hmm. and if somebody describes something interesting to us, we can look up and see it. And but it's out of our grasp, right? So it, it's just beyond our reach, but it's really, really interesting, and so that makes it exciting. And, yeah, yeah. And I thought, you know, marine science is the same way. You know, we. Can just, we can hear about things in the oceans that are really interesting, but they're out of our grasp because you know not all of us have scuba gear, and even if we do, there's a lot of stuff we can't. There's get a lot into. of people don't live near the ocean. Yeah, so yeah. it's really exciting stuff, but it's just out of our grasp. And and radio or even television, of course, can can bring this to people and get them excited. So I thought, I want to if I ever have an opportunity, I want to create a star date for the oceans. And so when I was director of the Marine Science Institute, I had the opportunity to do this. And I, it turns out that Stardate is created by the University of Texas. Oh, I really? happen, <laughs> yes. I happened to be at the same institution that created awesome. Stardate by total accident. That's, That's awesome. crazy. Yeah. So I reached out to Stardate and I said, let us make a marine science version of Stardate. And, uh, and we did. And uh, it's, it's been very, very successful. And uh, as I said, we've been producing it. It's a weekly show, so we produce 52 episodes wow, a year. Wow, that's a lot of work. And people can get it on, you guys have a website and you're on iTunes. Uh, yeah, so. right. So, you know, scienceandthesea.org scienceandthesea.com or scienceandthesea.net is mm -hmm. uh, where you can, you can hear it for free. You can download episodes. Or you can tell your local radio station you want to hear it and we'll give it to them for free. That's wow. awesome. We'll, well be, we'll be uh, spreading the news. I'll have to listen in, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, thank you very much for coming in today. Oh, it's been great. It's been I'm, fun. I'm glad you, uh, you're you here at Moat and helping everybody out and 
good luck with the uh, tug of war with uh, Ken and Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> Hope they get to both spend lots of time doing good fish studies with you. Oh, me too. Thanks so much. Yeah. Okay. Well, guys, we'll see you uh, in two weeks for another episode of Two Sea Fans at Mo. Ta-ta. Ta-ta.